Chapter 4, Morning at Green Gables It was broad daylight when Anna woke and sat up in bed, staring confusedly at the window through which a flood of cheery sunshine was pouring and outside of which something white and feathery waved across glimpses of blue sky. For a moment, she could not remember where she was. First came a delightful thrill, as of something very pleasant, then a horrible remembrance. This was Green Gables, and they didn't want her because she wasn't a boy. Welcome to Kindred Spirits, a conversation about the ways Anne Shirley has shaped our lives. I'm Erica. I'm Jean-Daniel. And we are Kindred Spirits. This week, we're reading Chapter 4, Morning at Green Gables, Through the Lens of Green Gables, which I'm really excited to explain to you after you've given us a summary. It's morning at Green Gables. The outside world is perfect, but Anne's heart is breaking. Matthew has hired Jerry, a neighborhood francophone boy, to help out on the farm. Marilla finds Anne to be somebody who talks entirely too much but perhaps is beginning to get mesmerized. Marilla is committed to sorting out the situation, driving over to White Sands and settling the thing. That is Anne with Mrs. Spencer. However, as she rides off, the aggravating Matthew is leaning over the gate, looking wistfully after them. So we've been talking a lot in the previous episodes about Green Gables. And so I, I want to actually focus on the house and the farm itself today. That it in a reader's imagination, in my imagination, Green Gables is this perfect place and we we're always seeing it through Anne's eyes. But when Rachel Lynde talks about Green Gables, it sounds like a less than perfect place in her mind. And I, I have to wonder if it's Anne who brings all of this beauty and wonder to Green Gables. So I actually want to go through the exercise of imagining a different morning at Green Gables, a morning before Anne arrived there. So I, I spent yesterday morning doing some unnecessarily complicated triangulation with all of the other books in the Anne series. I had them all out on my coffee table at one point and I was trying to do my own calculations of when was Anne born? When was Green Gables built? And, you know, Wikipedia has guesses, but they're just guesses. Turns out their guesses are similar to my guesses, but I wanted to do my own guessing. So based on how old Anne's children are, I am estimating, along with most of the rest of the Anne Shirley literate world that she was born in 1865, um, which has some really Im interesting implications for costuming and adaptations, which we can talk about in the puffed sleeves chapter. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm guessing Anne is born in about 1865, which means she arrives at Green Gables in the mid to late 1870s, which means that Marilla is almost definitely still cooking over an open hearth she probably does not have the big cast iron stove that we see in all of the adaptations. She's probably cooking over an open fireplace, which I think is important for just imagining the food and probably means 
that since Green Gables was built when Matthew and Marilla were adults, it was likely built, I don't know, can we say Matthew and Marilla are in their 40s or 50s? Does that sound reasonable? It's, it's hard to know because, you know, we perceive them as old, but we perceive them as old through the vantage point of an 11-year-old to whom most people are old. Well, we know that I, Rachel I and Marilla at... are about the same age and Rachel's children are all grown up, but Rachel was also married at 18. So, yeah. so I, it's quite possible that Rachel Lind isn't any older than 40. Marilla could also only be 40. I suppose, and I'm trying to think if I have any good reason for this, I've always pictured them in their 60s, maybe the early end of 60s. Um, to me, that sounded like the right balance of actually young enough to still be doing as much as they're doing, but old enough to need the help they feel they need. But of course, that's also with a modern bias that that could very well be true of 50 as well. So now I'm trying to figure out why I pictured them in their 60s. The idea of Marilla And also remember that Marilla and... Possible for, me, for example. Like Sorry, I, can you say that again? The idea, well, I don't know the exact age cutoff, but the idea of Marilla or Matthew like having brown hair instead of grayish or graying hair is very hard for me to envision. We actually know from the earlier chapters that Matthew's beard is brown, but his hair is graying. Yeah. However, my Which mom has had completely baby. white hair at age 36, and I'm well on my way. So and I'm intrigued I stand by, by Marilla and Matthew could be in their 40s. Yeah, I, I'm also intrigued by Matthew's hair colorations as somebody who has very much brown hair, but a lot of gray in the beard. So what's going on there? How am I even going to find these characters relatable if their beard color is different than mine? <laughs> well, but I also want to point out that Marilla and Gilbert Blythe's father were an item. So yes. Marilla is young enough to be a parent of a child Anne's age. Yeah, and of course, we don't know his age difference with Gilbert, for example, but... It's one of those things where you picture something so long you're not sure where it came from or if you're justified but I've always seen Matthew and Marilla as in between being parent and grandparent in generation. Like their age differential to Anne isn't quite grandparent, but it's not easily imaginable as parent. What I'm trying to say with this whole very long tangent that doesn't actually relate to the house is that Matthew and Marilla could be younger than we think they are. Mm -hmm. They could be quite a bit younger than we think they are. Like one of Charlie's grandmas is only just 50 and it's 2020. It's very possible that in the 1870s, grandparent age, like I said, is 40. Like Rachel Lind could be yeah. 40 and have grandchildren easily. All that being well, said- I'll talk to you about the, the hearth versus stove issue because yeah. I have seen self-appointed experts and well-trained experts of dress history, of culinary history, of interior design history, being very pedantic and critical of various adaptations of Anne. And this is a new pedantic detail that nobody has yet mentioned. And I applaud you for it. <laughs> well, it's one that had never occurred to me until I spent some time last summer in an 1890s house where the cast iron stove was absolutely part of the kitchen, but it's a new thing in the 1890s house. And so, if canonically Anne 
has grown up children in the 19 teens, which we know she does from Rilla of Ingleside, then she's a child in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, sometime in that time period before the cast iron stove is a mainstay in rural kitchens. It existed, but it wouldn't have been common. Um, and the <coughs> my my source for this very loosely is the cooking manual by okay so my source for for all of this is uh, Miss Beecher's Housekeeper and Healthkeeper which is a, a cookbook by Catherine Beecher who is actually Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister and it has hearth cooking recipes and it was kind of it was like the joy of cooking of the mid 19th century well i think you, you bring up a really important question about adaptation and, and how we picture things in the past because the easiest level of this kind of research is to figure out when certain things were invented but that doesn't account for the fact that things spread and become common slowly i remember becoming very well aware of this when learning that my grandmother grew up in a town in New York state where she almost never saw a car in her childhood. She was absolutely born after cars had been invented, but in rural upstate New York in the 1920s, they were still the domain of very wealthy people, mostly not from her town. And to realize that, oh, and I was actually surprised to discover that most things about the internet and cell phones were invented before I was born because I remember when people first got them, but they in fact were invented before even I was born. So it's certainly worth noting that yeah, rural Prince Edward Island might be behind the times in terms of kitchen technology, fashion, although perhaps the puff sleeves are actually an anachronism, not a slow, but... Well... Well, and that's the other interesting thing to think about is that the timeline of Anne's life is only firmly established once Maud Montgomery has been writing these books for a long time. And so it's kind of fair that adaptations set Anne's childhood in the 1890s, 1900s, even though that would mean she's sort of in stasis in that era for 20 years. And then time starts to move forward once she's married and has children. Well, I mean, that's certainly possible in the arts as well. We all know that Lisa Simpson has been in grade two since the 90s. So I'm going to just laugh and pretend I understand that reference. I've never watched The Simpsons. The key fact is Bart is in fourth grade and Lisa is in grade two and Maggie is a baby. And 30 years on, that has never changed. They do cool. not Thank you. I understand now. Which is a blessing of animation that would not be possible in live action. So let's return to the text now <laughs> and use our imaginations for a purpose that I think Anne might disapprove of. <laughs> and that is to see Green Gables not through Anne's eyes. We know that there is a cherry tree outside the window. We know that there's a brook. We know that there, the cherry tree is part of an orchard and there are apple trees as well. And we know that Anne's window sticks so badly that it doesn't need a stick to hold it up because obviously this is before you had 
windows with, you know, pulley systems to hold them up all by themselves. So given these facts, and also given what Rachel told us in the first chapter, that it's painfully neat, that it's set back from the road in what she interprets as an unsociable setting, that it was built by the elder Mr. Cuthbert when his two children, we're assuming there are only two of them, we never hear about any other siblings, were already grown up. So, oh, and we also know when Marilla comes in and Anne is praising Snow Queen, that that tree has horrible fruit that is always full of worms and never produces cherries well. So let's imagine yesterday morning at Green Gables, not Anne's morning at Green Gables, but Marilla's morning the day before. If a cherry tree is in bloom, that puts us in late May, early June on Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island. I'm imagining that's similar to Montreal, upstate New York. So that would, that would be late May, um, which means the sun rises very early, which means Marilla got up very early. She lit the fire in her big hearth, which is hard to do well. Um, I may be speaking from experience. I am mm -hmm. not great at getting a fire going. Same. She put a pot fires. over her. So I spent four years at a history museum pretending it was 1627 and it never got easier for me to light a good hearth fire. Yeah, I, I still can't do a good hearth fire. We'll say an 1890s cook stove is much easier to light a good fire in. Although harder to chop wood for because it has to be the right size to fit in the wood box. So she lights the fire, she puts her... or rekindles it because she never let it go out right and she puts her pot of water to boil over it and she's already been up and done all of this before Anne gets up so we can imagine that marilla's done an hour or two of work before breakfast and matthew probably has too and it's a beautiful spring day outside but we also know that marilla doesn't trust sunlight so she's probably not going outside we can if this is the day previous to Anne then we can imagine that Marilla is probably quite anxious and not admitting it to herself. Mm -hmm. And Matthew is probably rushing to do extra things early in the day because he knows he's missing his potato planting time to go pick the boy up from Bright River. And we also know that the trees are in full bloom, but that means work in the fall. That means sifting through the wormy fruit to make the crab apple preserves. And I don't know if you've ever made crab apple preserves. I have. Crab apples are about the size of a cherry and every single one of them has a core the way an apple does. And the cores are nasty and crunchy, so you have to take them out. I use a food mill. I don't actually know if there's an equivalent piece of equipment that would have been available to Marilla, but making crab apple preserves, which Anne eats in the previous chapter, so we know Marilla made them, it's a lot of work. It's really annoying. And so looking at Green Gables through Matthew and Marilla's eyes, it's a huge amount of work. It's a house that their father built far away from everything, which Matthew seems to benefit from. I'm not sure Marilla does. It might be isolating and lonely for Marilla. Mm -hmm. Oh, and also the brook running down at the bottom of the property. If they have a cellar, which they almost definitely do, the, that brook probably floods their cellar in the spring. Green Gables definitely has the potential to be a fairly dismal place What's if you're looking at it as a place to take care of and or gain a living from 
Yeah, there are a few interesting things coming to my mind as you mentioned this. First, you mentioned, let's try to see this not through the eyes of Anne. And I had a whole interior conversation that went very quickly of, well, I've seen it not through the eyes of Anne because I physically have been there. And then, of course, everything about my experience of going to physically see it was because I've seen it through the eyes of Anne for years. And even if you're not familiar with the books and you go as a tourist to the Green Gables National Historic Site, the government of Canada will, Canada will present it to you through the eyes of Anne. So there's no, there is no fresh look that's possible without this kind of willful <clears throat> mental exercise that you're suggesting. Another thing is you mentioned like, oh, it could be somewhat dismal place. I grew up in a fairly popular with tourists seaside community outside of Boston. And one of the things that I thought that all my high school friends thought when flooded with out of state license plates every summer is why are they here? This is a, this is crap. This is boring. There's, why are people coming here? Like for the life of me, I couldn't understand why anybody would go to Plymouth or Cape Cod. Like, what are you doing? Go back to New York, leave us alone. There's mostly New York plates. No offense, Erica. So there is this thing, though, that I think can happen uh, in adolescence that wherever you grow up is stupid and horrible. I mean, I see that working with university students in Montreal, that people not from Montreal think Montreal is the most exciting place in the world. And the few from Montreal, like, oh, what a dump I grew up in. Like, there's almost this normative idea that where I grew up is boring and terrible, even if it's a beautiful seaside community like Avonlea is presented as. Uh, as Cape Cod is, or if it's a thriving, exciting city like Montreal is. But Anne subverts that generalization, right? In how much she loves Green Gate. She's not that kind of bitter teenager hating it. She's only been there. Well, and I wonder, yeah, I'm thinking about Matthew and Marilla now and how they never had a chance to leave. But also if Green Gables was built when they were adults, I wonder where they grew up. Was it on the same piece of property, just in a different house that was maybe closer to the road? Because we do get through glancing mentions, the impression that Green Gables is quite a big piece of property. It's a big farm. Yeah. So it's quite possible there was a house on it somewhere else on the property. And there's also at the beginning of Anne's House of Dreams, it's mentioned that there was a birth on the property that a hired man was living with his family somewhere on the farm at Green Gables and his wife had a baby while they were there. So that means there's at least one other house. Maybe that's the old house that Matthew and Marilla grew up in. It's obvious in the title of this book, Anne of Green Gables. Green Gables, to me, it's absolutely a character in this book. Few authors do it quite so obviously as Lucy Maud Montgomery, but she's not unique in this of making place a character with which the characters interact. And Anne is defined by the book titles by where she is currently of. You know, she's of Green Gables when she's interacting with other kids in Avonlea. She goes to high, you know, later on she goes to high school and then she's of Avonlea when she's interacting with other kids from PEI. When she goes to Nova Scotia for university, she's of the island. I would love to have a follow-up where Anne becomes Canada's ambassador to the UN late in life and becomes Anne of Canada. Because it's these kind of keep, we grow the circles of where Anne is from, but these settings are so important to the author. 
and I can't help but compare and contrast with other fantastic literature of the past. And I'm particularly thinking of Little Women, which shares with Anne of Green Gables this very particular fictional story that takes place in a very non-fictional house. So the strange experience of visiting Orchard House in Concord, Massachusetts, or Green Gables in Cavendish, PEI, where the house is real. And the house always existed. But you then you're picturing these characters like, oh, where's Anne's room? Where was Joe's room? And the answer is nowhere. The, the story is made up, but the house isn't. And then you compare that with, you know, Little House on the Prairie, Farmer Boy, that house is real. That boy is real. That's just a true story. There's a simplicity there. With Green Gables, the author made this decision that this house, what would it be like for my house to be a house where a very different child grew up instead of me? So How can you actually tell me whose house is Green Gables, the real house? I'm a little fuzzy on those details as I confessed earlier i haven't been there um and i'm sure some of our listeners would appreciate that clarity as well because if it's her grandmother's house then that adds another layer because she was not happy there green gables was initially built by the mcneil family in the 1830s and they are relatives of lucy maud montgomery i don't know maybe just by erroneous association with orchard house i assumed it was where Lucy Maud Montgomery grew up because Orchard House is where Louise May Alcott grew up. But because um... I my assumption was actually completely the other end of the spectrum. I thought that Green Gables, that's now the tourist attraction, was built to be a tourist attraction, which again may be completely wrong. But that's why I hadn't thought about real place fictional character for this book in the same way that I had for Little Women. No, it's a very real house that was really built in the 1830s and that Lucy Maud Montgomery knew, but I'm not seeing any indication that she actually lived there. If it's the McNeil house, and if I'm remembering her journals correctly, then that would have been a, a house of relatives that she liked, that she visited for extended periods of time, but she never actually lived there. That's, so that's fascinating too. Man, we should have done more research before this episode, but... Um, well, and also I'm really, I feel vindicated now that my mental gymnastics arriving at Green Gables having been built in the 1930s or 1830s or 40s is borne out, in fact. And my point about the hearth cooking stands. Green Gables is situated on Ella Montgomery Cavendish National Historic Site of Canada, a large property that includes Montgomery's homestead. So she lived near Green Gables, but it was a relative's house. It was never her house. Wow. Okay. So she's more like living in Rachel Lynn's house down the street, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost that, that layer. I mean, of course, Lucy Maud Montgomery and Anne Shirley are not the same person. And it's the more reading I do about both of them, the easier it becomes to separate them, in fact. Yeah. But knowing that... Ella Montgomery never lived in the house that she's writing about makes it feel like we have less of an obligation to imagine these ghosts of mornings without Anne to me that Ella Montgomery we know was an unhappy child 
we can extrapolate that Anne was an unhappy child before arriving at Green. Ellen Montgomery uses a very real house, an explicitly existing, visible real house really takes Prince Edward Island as a setting exceptionally seriously. But she makes up all the town names. We know that Avonlea is Cavendish, but she doesn't say Cavendish. She makes it Avonlea. Perhaps because Cavendish is so small, we don't want people in Cavendish wondering which character they are. But there's this interesting balance of PEI is real, Green Gables is real, Avonlea and Carmody are fake, and then, you know, of course, later the university is the schools that Anne goes to are all obviously based on very real places, but never using their real names. I don't know if this is the best or worst thing ever to happen to Dalhousie University, that it gets renamed. I would be very upset if I were on the communications department at Dalhousie for the fact Ella Montgomery made up a different name for Redmond. But I've thought about the renaming places in my own occasional literary attempts and we really like maps in this house i mean you can you can see a map behind me on the wall there's another one in front of me on that wall and uh you have one behind you and ben and i would both spend time as children just like sitting and reading a road atlas because that's the kind of people we are and so i've thought about this that if i described for example if i were to write a story set in a small town in northern new york on the western shore of Lake Ontario in a small corner of a harbor on a spit of land. Like, people who live in Henderson Harbor, New York, would know exactly which town I was talking about, even if I called it a different harbor, yeah. New York. Even though there are lots of towns along that piece of shoreline called Blank Harbor, like, they would know if I described where it sat in you the know, lake. It would also... It's the same thing with Cavendish. So, like, what's the point of renaming it if you give enough geographical detail that you can say, yes, that's that town? I think it gives you a bit of liberties. Uh, I've certainly thought about, you know, writing that home on a clay almost about my childhood, but not 100% my childhood, about a vague Massachusetts coastal town. But, you know, because... I would want to picture certain things that are part of my childhood, but are not next to each other. And the fact they're not next to each other is kind of irrelevant and distracting from the story. So it'd be easier if people just imagined that they were. Uh, I recently saw a movie called The Way Way Back, which takes place in uh, the region and was filmed where I grew up. And it's hilarious to me because they're constantly crossing a street to end up 30 miles away. And it's always places I know, but you're just like, that That kid just went on a five-minute bicycle ride across 55 miles of Cape Cod. Wow, what a good cyclist. But I also totally get why the creator did it, because that spot's pretty, that spot's pretty, and this is your shot to film something where you grew up. So just magically smush things together. And... And I think also Ellen Montgomery is such an attentive author to the details of physical setting and the details of people's personality that she would have to throw a few fake names in to make sure that people aren't mapping incorrectly or maybe worse correctly <laughs> onto her fiction, real people. So 
she was writing close enough to the time and place that describing a person with a certain obvious mental illness living in a house that looks a certain way, you better use a fake town name. I wonder if that's part of it. But Green Gables has a character that is so important to her. It's so idealized. So I guess the question that I'm really trying to ask with all of this circular reasoning and your triangulation and research that I should have done but didn't because I wanted to keep it grounded in the text. The question I'm really asking is, is Green Gables actually like this or does Anne make it this way? Does Anne turn Green Gables into this perfect place just by the fact of her presence? Or was it already that way and Matthew and Marilla just couldn't see it? Or maybe Marilla just couldn't see it. I wonder if it has to be a both and where it has to be, you know, there's a question of how do we choose to perceive things, but still be rooted in reality. You know, Marilla is prone to being so realistic as to not see beauty that is in fact there. I wonder, would we say that Anne is so imaginative that she sees beauty where it doesn't exist or so imaginative that she just sees beauty that does in fact exist. The Lake of Shining Waters is in fact a lake and it does in fact shimmer. You know, like, is it a, a willful emphasis? This isn't like Bridge to Terabithia imagining an utterly fantastic world where one isn't. It is imagining or recognizing the fantastic beauty that is in fact there. Because I think, and I've, I've heard from my own experience, and I've heard the experience of people who like visit Green Gables who don't care about Anne of Green Gables. It can be the most magically beautiful place in the world, or it can just be a really, really boring old house in the middle of nowhere. And I think every day- I always think up, old houses in the middle of nowhere are the best because they have so much scope for imagination. Right? right? So I don't understand that point. <laughs> And I think that's it, though, is Rachel and Anne can both be right. Is Green Gables just kind of a blah old house and a tiny town on PEI that could just be isolating and boring and sad? Or is it an absolute magical escape to a better life? Yes. I think it depends on who you are. And this is one of the reasons I'm wondering if it does actually feel like as much of a prison for Marilla as Rachel thinks it does or thinks it would for her because Marilla is only able to see the wormy cherries and, you know, the windows that won't open and the sticks that she has to clean off the grass and the really long lane that she has to walk down before she sees anyone in town. It, I wonder if Marilla's perception of Green Gables is a reflection of her life there. It must be. Mm -hmm. And so is Green Gables transformation actually the beginning of Marilla's transformation? One of the moments that shows how Anne perceives this place is she knelt there, lost to everything but the loveliness around her. Until she was startled by a hand on her shoulder, Marilla had come in unheard by the small dreamer. So this is a moment where Anne sees enough loveliness into which to become utterly lost. And Marilla has managed to, you know, wake up, get dressed, and start 
executing a plan to remove a child from the home. <laughs> like, in the same scenery. <laughs> There's also a really beautiful moment of omniscience. So one of the things I like about the narration in this series is that we go back and forth between limited to Anne's perspective and seeing everything, all the natural beauty through Anne's eyes. And sometimes we see things from an overseeing presence that can see everything. And so it says, uh, Anne came downstairs in 10 minutes time with her clothes neatly on her hair brushed and braided her face washed and a comfortable consciousness pervading her soul that she had fulfilled all Marilla's requirements. So that's Anne limited. And then as a matter of fact, however, she had forgotten to turn back the bedclothes. So Anne thinks she's being practical. Marilla thinks Anne has been practical, but there's actually evidence upstairs. So she's forgotten to do something. And I just, I love that from a narration standpoint, as well as being utterly relatable. I think I've done everything on my to-do list. And then I realize, oh, it's 1135 on Friday morning. It's compost day and nobody has taken the compost out yet. That's a real time realization. My compost bucket is still sitting in my kitchen. Ella Montgomery and uh, her slightly ahead of her near contemporary Lucy Louise May Alcott both do a lot of what I think modern creative writing professors would lambast of this deliberate and I think always clever and humorous fourth wall breaks to the audience. I love them. Uh, I'm rereading the Emily of New Moon series by the same author and the other night reread a line that said, I am Emily's biographer, not her apologist. And you're like, that's hilarious because of course you are her apologist. <laughs> you know, you know that. Like, it's just. That's a very 19th century thing. That's why people, well, that's one of the many reasons people don't like George Eliot is because she spends pages and pages and pages speaking directly to the reader. Or if you think of that famous line from Jane Eyre, reader, I married him. It's actually a very conventional thing from the 19th century that for some reason people yeah. don't think is acceptable in writing anymore. It's still funny. And, and I think, you know, in terms of the evolution of what's good literature, Ellen Montgomery is actually living in a transition from that being very normal and good to that being the worst. And I think she's not just in between chronologically. She's in between and having a deliberate control over using point of view character and omniscience cleverly. Like there are clever alterations. Saying the thing through Anne's point of view and then saying there is in fact something she didn't do is funny. I, I That makes me laugh. I think it's funny and, and maybe I'm a parent of eight children similarly aged to Anne and I live that experience a lot of that kind of earnest and well-intentioned and sincere. I did it all. And then you just look and you're like, oh, let's discuss the word all. How do we define? <laughs> yeah, I love thinking of it as a deliberate stylistic choice that she's in a position to make because of the century of writing that's come before her that she's clearly been voraciously reading. And then it, yeah, moving, moving forward, but with deliberate use of what has come before. Do you have anything else you want to say about Green Gables? Because there's an unrelated point that I 
I, I need to share with you. Share your unrelated point, please. Anne starts talking about Matthew when Marilla asks Anne if she can wash dishes right. Mm -hmm. um, and then somehow that conversation ends up in Matthew is a ridiculous man. Mm -hmm. And Anne says, I think he's lovely. And then Marilla responds, you're both queer enough if that's what you mean by kindred spirits. Now, I know you and I have had private conversations about Anne's possible queerness in relation to later books. I have never thought about that in relation to Matthew before, though. But a single man living with his sister, sure, maybe he's just shy. Maybe he's a queer man in the 19th century. I know that's probably not what Ellen Montgomery meant, but maybe it is. Well, I mean, one of the, the challenge, I, many, um, it's, it's always dangerous to put modern labels on people in the past because they didn't have the label to live out that way. Also, I, I do think there are problematic impulses in queer analyses that everybody who isn't sexually active heterosexually must therefore be gay because that presumes that everybody's really interested in sex. And so the people who are asexual and demisexual or just shy are like, the only options in the world are not heterosexual sex and gays. Like being shy is also just a thing that exists. And of course, there's also the problematic assumption that just because Anne marries, spoilers, Gilbert, that automatically means that she's heterosexual. Yeah. That's also not necessarily a safe assumption. You know, I, I think I think we can make a Kinsey scale of the young women of Ellen Montgomery books. We're like, well, Anne seems to have some pretty strong girl crushes. Emily seems to have stronger girl crushes. Ilsa seems to have stronger, like, um, Ilsa and Emily really like that haystack night. What I think is interesting, you know, Marilla says you're both queer enough, and obviously the meaning of queer to mean LGBTQ plus is later. But it's it's it becomes a a term that's used euphemistically for people who are unusual. And the reality here is that Marilla, Matthew, and Anne, even though Marilla's the one lodging this critique, all three of them are living queer lives in that older sense of the word, minimally. They're not living the standard nuclear family lifestyle that is expected of their time and place. And for Marilla to like lodge that kind of critique against Matthew and Anne is, I don't know if it's lacking in self-awareness. You're all living, you know, all three of them are living outside of the cons confines of a normative family. And perhaps one of the subversive things about this novel is its idea of what family life could be is very atypical. Just to throw this out there, the Oxford English Dictionary says the first recorded use of the word queer to mean homosexual was in 1894. Okay. And this book was published in 1908. So it's not necessarily an anachronism. It's also not necessarily what Ellen Montgomery is saying, but I like well, that there's ambiguity there um, and it's not just me being anachronistic. Yeah, no, and, and Ellen Montgomery's use of the word queer is fascinating to me. He's the queerest priest of them all, being a quote from the Emily of New Moon, New Moon series that I find personally hilarious. Yes, it's about a family name, not an occupation. 
yes, it's about being unusual, not about being gay, but also slightly older man who you trust with your daughter at your niece. I don't know. There are a lot of ways to be uncomfortable around women. <laughs> and, and being gay isn't the only way to do that. It's almost stereotypical in the whole trope of the gay best friend that sometimes queer men are known as being unusually comfortable with women. Oh, absolutely. I think being shy and interested in women leads to a lot more awkwardness usually than being not interested in women. I was very confused as an adolescent on how the fact that I always hung out with girls was something that people used to to assume I was gay. Because that to me was like, wait, what? how do you... What is the gymnastics going on in your brain? Like, well, you know, he's just always like at the beach hanging out with girls he's so gay but a little bit because that's like why they trusted me to be the one male friend who was always with them when they're at the beach so i wasn't weird or creepy about it yeah matthew he's so very sympathetic looking at this passage uh this these pages here i'm also really struck by he didn't mind how much i talked he seemed to like it and I just see on the next page, what's the matter now, demanded Marilla, and then Anne gives a answer. And I wonder how much of Anne's talkativeness is the author kind of doing, playing a, a mental what if game. What would it be like to be a young woman who didn't play according to society's gender roles and keep quiet? How much have I wanted to say? To pivot with a reference to a very different genre, I recently heard a George R.R. R. Martin interview where he referred to one of his characters, Tyrion, as being so much more clever than me. And then he corrected himself and he said, no, Tyrion isn't more clever than me. Every witty retort he's ever said, I wrote. But Tyrion comes up with them immediately and I have to think of them in a few days. And you know, so it's kind of acknowledging that on one hand, his character is smarter than him, but then he has this self-aware acknowledgement of like, wait, my character can't be smarter than me. I put all those words in his mouth, but I got to put those words in his mouth much later. And so much of me wonders, you know, why, why is this adult woman keep choosing these adolescent protagonists? How much is it kind of wondering like, oh, only I had, only I, what if I did tell the adult exactly all my feelings when they asked what was the matter? How different would my, you know, how different would an adolescence be if you just actually told grown-ups your feelings? Which I think is still a very relevant question for young people and why Anne is so relatable to so many young people. Because she just says all well, the- Like we were talking the last time, it's important it's important for people to share openly and honestly. I, I think I share a lot more now than I did as a child, or at least as an adolescent, that if I had been in that situation that Anne is, I would have just said, oh, never mind. I decided not to go outside. Mm -hmm. That would have been so much easier for her to say, so much more boring to read, but I think more likely for a real child, not a fictional child, to have said. Well, yeah, and this, of course, is a, a balance of we want enough realism that we can connect and enough that isn't real that it's interesting. 
because you, you only want to read something that is somehow out of the ordinary. And I think this does loop us back to the importance of Green Gables and the importance of place is I think we needed a setting for this story that is described in enough detail that we feel that we can picture it, that we can connect with it, that we can imagine it, but that we want, but that's also magical enough and interesting enough that it's different than our backyard. That's worth well, and it's also imagining. undetailed enough that you can superimpose your own backyard onto it. I actually grew up with an ornamental cherry tree outside my bedroom window and a brook down at the end of the street, not, not on the same property. But it was close enough to Green Gables that I could superimpose it on onto Green Gables because it wasn't... You know, this is where the house is, and then immediately outside there's this, and then it's not as detailed as, let's say, Little House on the Prairie, which tells you how Pa cut the boards and assembled them into the house. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's not that detailed from a practical standpoint, partly because Anna's our, our viewpoint into this world, I think. But also, this whole paragraph you were just talking about, if Virginia Woolf had written this novel, novel it would not be in quotations this would just be part of the stream of consciousness narrative mm -hmm. and so i think that she's playing with the genre boundaries and the the looking back from a century in the future we can say oh this is bordering between 19th century realism and the modernist movement which obviously people weren't thinking about when they were writing it you know anna's describing to Marilla everything that's going through her head rather than just describing straight to the reader everything that's going through her head. That also, though, gives Marilla the opportunity to engage with it. And thank uh, goodness, that's what saves Marilla's soul. Well, that that's a, that's a loaded comment I want you to say more about. I just, I keep thinking of the scene in the 1980s adaptation when they're Sorry, I'm skipping ahead a chapter, but when they're coming back from seeing Mrs. Spencer and Anne takes Marilla's hand, mm -hmm. and that's the moment when Marilla starts to become a person and not just a you know cardboard cutout of a frugal housekeeper. Mm -hmm. And so what Anne is doing with Green Gables and seeing it as this magical, beautiful place in this chapter I don't think foreshadowing is a word that I'm allowed to use with these books anymore, just because I know so much of what's coming. Yeah. I don't think this would be foreshadowing if I didn't know the relationship between Anna and Marilla that was going to develop. But it's Anne's transforming Green Gables in a way that sets up the transformation of Marilla in the future. Later in the chapter, I've never in all my life saw or heard anything to equal her muttered Marilla beating her treat down cellar after potatoes. She is kind of interesting. I can already feel I'm wondering what on earth she'll say next. She'll be casting a spell over me too. In kind of the, the prim proper world that we were introduced to as Marilla and Rachel's worldview already the most confusing and shocking and scandalous thing you can do is direct communication of exactly what you want and feel. So the mystery of Anne isn't what is she thinking? The mystery of Anne is 
why is she actually telling me what she's thinking? <laughs> you know, it's, um, and this is something that you and I have both had some conversation about our relatively shockingly open personalities, according to the wider world of like, I've had this come up in actual work meetings where people are like, well, what's your game? What, what are you going after? And I have to say exactly what I just said. Like my end goal is to get the thing I just said I wanted. That's it. There, and like to play at that level with people of like, oh, well, what do you want? What do you think? And then actually answer them. It's amazing how befuddling that is to so many folks. And that Marilla can't claim to be confused by Anne on the level of, what is she thinking? What What is going on in her heart and her soul and her mind? That's not the mystery. The mystery is, why is she telling me this? Is there a trust? Is there a love here? Is there a hope for trust and love? I think Anne's just information dumping on everybody she can and saying, I dare you to love this. And Matthew's like, challenge accepted. And Marilla's seeing that unfold for herself. Also, I recommend Anne's strategy here as the way people should date, but that's a controversial approach. Here are all my thoughts, feelings, quirks, and flaws. Yes or no? Just let's just. Am I staying here? Or Poor Matthew, I... though. Matthew does, isn't able to to put himself out there like that. He can't. I don't think Matthew has the self knowledge or the words to describe the inner workings of his mind in the same way that Anne does. Would you say that he admires it, though? Is, is yes. Quite, you know, I wonder: is he quiet because he's just stunned, or is he? I think. He, he comes across to me as admiring it, as you just said, so enthusiastically. I think he's absolutely admiring it, perhaps even aspiring to it a little bit. But as I said in the Matthew chapter, I suspect that Matthew may be a less verbal processor than Anne is. And he just, he's experiencing things without having words to get them out of his head. Yeah, and certainly Matthew and Anne are portrayed as very polar opposites on the uh, verbal processing spectrum. And yet being less of a verbal processor than Anne is not a difficult bar. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Most people are. But while Anne says more than I think I say, and I certainly say a lot, I find what she says deeply true trains of thought that I find recognizable. Which is, I think, part of why I wonder to what extent is some of Anne Ella Montgomery's intellectual exercise. What if somebody said, what's the matter? And you just hold them. People literally come to me, make an appointment on purpose with me to tell me what's the matter. And I usually have to work pretty hard to engage them to get them to answer that question. Even when I know the context is you deliberately chose to come to tell me what's the matter. And you have been so conditioned not to do it. Anne is my dream person to come to a pastoral care appointment. For all kinds of reasons. <laughs> Just to be like, what's the matter? Well, here's the list. Here's the context. Here's the backstory. Here's my emotional perception of it. Here's what I'm hoping for. Here's what I'm afraid of. And Here's what I wish the truth was. 
Yeah, Anne in one paragraph answers everything that I would ask therapeutic follow-up questions to get at. The self-awareness is just stunning. And yet, I would say, I don't think she's utterly unique in this level of self-awareness. If I ask people the follow-up questions, get all those details, many people will know them. What's stunning is just the, the, the sense of like, oh, here it is. It's all on the table. Like, Marilla, you are going to drive down to talk with Mrs. Spencer with just as all of this seeping into you and you thinking about it the whole ride there, not admitting you're thinking about it. So is Marilla perhaps the other half of this intellectual exercise? Then Marilla is someone who, as we've mentioned several times already, incredibly unaware of herself. She is an example of someone who has been encouraged not to share what she's feeling her entire life for many decades at this point. Oh dear, Charlie's sharing what he has to say. Marilla is so conditioned to not share what she's thinking and feeling that she just has no idea anymore. And unfortunately, she's, she's the quote, normal one. And so then I would not being aware of that. I wonder who is actually more out of touch with reality and letting their life be overrun by their imagination. Anne or Marilla. Ooh. Because Anne, yeah, she uses flowery, flowery language to describe what she sees, but Marilla seems to have constructed and deeply internalized a complete self-narrative that isn't necessarily quite true. So who's the more imaginative one here? Who's the one? Sure, Marilla's not pretending her name is Cornelia, but she is pretending she's unfazed, emotionless, practical, and strong, which is probably more delirious. She's allowed to be all of those things. She just has other realities to explore also. Maybe she's not imagining things that aren't true, but she's imagining things that are true as not being there or not being important. I she's think, imagining away things rather than imagining in things, so Anne's doing. Yeah, and, and neither is more dishonest or honest than the other. This is very normal with adults interacting with kids, whether they're as parents or teachers. Kids' questions and feelings and responses challenge us to question our own all the time. I have very seldom encountered a cranky child who was not behaving exactly according to how I would feel under the same circumstances. I've come to realize that my adult maturity is only in my ability to control the external manifestations of feeling hungry, tired. But the fundamental emotions of, I am tired, let me sleep. I am hungry, I want food. I really need to go to the bathroom, please let me go to the bathroom. Like these are all feelings I still have. My adult maturity is being slightly less prone to just screaming about it ever so slightly. sometimes it's still tempting i will say the one that's that baffles me as a parent of an infant at the moment is i'm so tired and i won't sleep <laughs> my understanding is that that will increase in intensity in toddlerhood but it's definitely already happening like falling asleep is preceded by depending on the day, five to 45 minutes of screaming about how tired he is. I was struck by, if I can't stay here, then there's no use in my loving Green Gables. You and I both don't live at Green Gables. And yet I think we have found great deal of use in loving Green Gables. 
I just want to call Anne Shirley wrong. Oh, but I would also say that you, and please correct me if I'm making assumptions, but you and I both live in places that we are surrounded by people we love and things we love and a city we love. And we're adults with more or less disposable income to make these spaces places that reflect us. Mm-hmm. And that's completely non-analogous to Anne's interaction with Green Gables and her other surroundings. That I think Green my Gables. love of Green Gables has affected how I interact with every apartment in every city I've ever lived in, or non-city. Is Green Gables a house in Cavendish PI or state of mind, Erica? <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking around my living room full of quilts and maps and turn of the century furniture and i would say it's a state of mind yes the cottage core is strong with both of us absolutely i i believe uh ellen montgomery and um laura ingalls wilder deserve a lot of credit for the cottage core movement on instagram that they're probably not getting but that's a, a longer and less uh on topic discussion Thank you, Erica, for joining Well, us. you've also given me a, a title for the short story slash poem slash song that you last week asked me to write about my moth infestation. That was my reason for postponing. It, I, I haven't written any of it yet, but it will be entitled Green Gables State of Mind. Is <laughs> that to the Billy Joel song, New York State of Mind in tune? Probably not. That's a good choice. That was a terrible idea. Thanks for listening to Kindred Spirits. Follow us on Facebook at Kindred Spirits Podcast, on Twitter at Kindred Spirits P, and on Instagram at Kindred Spirits P. On our website, kindredspiritspodcast.ca, you can find show notes, links to us on all social media and podcast platforms, and information on how to follow or contact us individually. Thank you to our founding Patreon supporters, Sarah Kay, Marilyn B., Anne M., Connor H.B., Marie-André, and Jennifer O. If you would also like to support our ambitions and help us build our castles in the sky, you too can support us on patreon.com slash kindredspiritspodcast, as well as subscribing on your podcaster of choice and leaving a review. Our theme music is Desperates and Across the Causeway from Algoma Highway, composed by Ari Vandeven and performed by the Cygnus Trio, which includes me. You can buy our music and learn more at thesignistrio.com. Anne of Green Gables was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Episodes are written by us, Erica Jacobs Perkins and Jean Daniel Odenha. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. Always lovely to socialize. I mean, work very hard with you. It's a both and. We're Anglicans, we can do that. Professional and cold and distant, there was no friendship.